0: I want to just begin with this powerful quote from Martin Luther. In his introductions to Romans in 1522, he said, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy themselves with it daily as though it were The daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It is in itself a bright light, almost bright enough to illumine the entire scriptures. I like what Thomas Drakes, so he was a 17th century English Puritan, said about it. He said, The quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. That's how he described Romans. Uh, you look back, Augustine's life, if I just finished Confessions, and Confessions, it was through reading Romans 13 that he realized. That he had this this issue of displaced affections and he came to understand and grasp the gospel of grace and, and surrendered his life. He, what he talks about is disordered loves, where Christ becomes the central component. He surrenders everything and then everything else takes its proper place. So powerful. And I would say that for us, and I want to just encourage you as we begin this journey through Romans, we're not going to take 12 years like Martin Lloyd Jones uh, to go through it, but we're going to spend quite a bit of time in it. And my goal um, as we go through this is that we could be a church that is able to articulate the heart of the gospel and understand its implications for us individually, us as a community, and 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 our call and our part in bringing this gospel to the world in which we live. You know, the the issue for us, as Socrates once said, oh, that someone would arise to show us God, is that we forget, maybe you are actually feeling this today, forget that all around us there is this lostness of humanity groping for its way out. That declaration of Socrates continues to be a declaration today. Oh, that someone would arise to show us God. And that is essentially what Jesus is. And yet, for many Christians, we still find ourselves waffling, like me, in that first year of faith. We're not experiencing the saving life of Christ. We don't understand the implications of the gospel. We don't understand that Jesus didn't just come to save us so that he can give us everything we ever wanted. He came to save us from the greatest enemy that you will ever face, which is yourself. And he came not to free you from your difficulties, but he came through the gospel, uh, presenting to us the gospel, which is himself, to free us from the need to be free from the difficulty and the suffering of the world around us. He sets us apart so that he can send us in. That the gospel is not primarily about our self-discovery but it's about discovery of the beauty and the glory of Christ, which so radically transforms the soul that it gives us the ability to move out of ourselves into this very broken world that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. When I look at the guilt and the shame and the disconnect and the loneliness and the overwhelming sensation that so many have that they are somehow strangers in a universe that is indifferent to them and doesn't belong to them. I just watched with my son the other night the documentary on this, uh, this rap star um, who was kind of this rising celebrity who had the X factor off the charts. In the documentary, I mean, you can't even help but fall in love with him. Uh, his name was Gustav, or, uh, is Gus. His performance name was Little Peep or a little peep, uh, and he died of a drug overdose last year. It literally in two years, he, he kind of rose from, from, from nothing to, to on the brink of super fame and has obviously become even more famous since his death. But uh, from 2016 to, I think he died in 2018 or 2017, in two years, he just had this like, just skyrocketed into popularity uh, and Henry actually went and saw him perform and, and, and met him and has this picture with him and it's just weird that a year later he was found dead in a bus of a drug overdose so an overdose of fentanyl um, but in the documentary the, it just made me sick to my stomach because I saw the very thing that I see in so many and I saw so much of myself in my 20s By the grace of God, I didn't kill myself. But this kid who was, he was genuinely good. He had a sweetness to him. He cared about his friends. But he also had this dark, self-destructive side where he was just giving himself to, I mean, He was going to show everyone he could do more drugs than anyone else, going as hard as he could, never sleeping, fentanyl, cocaine, alcohol, and yet at the same time, he wants to be generous, he wants to be different, he wants to be known, he wants to be loved. Broken relationship with his dad, just this friends that were seeing that he was more charismatic than them that were clinging on to him so that they could just have a part of what he had. He didn't know who his friends were and who, and who was just taking advantage of him. And they were probably a mixture of all of that. And all I saw in all of it was just the, the essence of how fundamentally lost we are. We don't even know what to do when we actually get the success we want. The kid lasted two years. And what I saw in that show too was just this unbelievable nihilism But at the same time, there still is this undercurrent of like, I I want to believe there's something more. And and really, it comes down to three things that I think people are longing for, and that's the wish to pass beyond ourselves as we currently are. That doesn't really change, does it? I mean, that's something that we continue to long for. There's also a craving for knowledge in the right direction. That's just something that struck me about the documentary. It's like, there was this desire... To do the right thing. Like he wasn't comfortable with wealth. And so he kept trying to give his money away. But at the same time he was doing all these. There was also the self-destructive side to it. It was like he couldn't escape the broken parts. And so even the good he was doing was actually sabotaging him. And then there's there's this longing for unity. A reunion with something bigger than ourselves. And really that longing is God. Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in the heart of man. You see, I, I think that one of the things that we have to combat is that we have, we have been so spoon-fed this ideology that, and, and it really is, as Tim talked about last week, there is a prosperity gospel that is infiltrated every arena, even of evangelicalism, uh, which is the belief that if I do these things, God's going to bless me. And if he doesn't bless me, if he doesn't give me financial blessing, if he doesn't give me a spouse, if he doesn't give me healing, if he doesn't give me children, then I must not be good, or God must not be good. But what Romans does is, I think it begins to speak to the depth of those very realities. And what it begins to show us is something really important that we often miss, even as Christians. And that is number one, you are so much more sinful. So sinful, in fact, that you are absolutely bound. There's lots of discussions around do do we have free will? Or is everything determined? Well, I would say that we do not have the freedom to reach God in our own effort. I'm not really interested in the freedom you have to make choices to get through your day. But I'm just simply saying that because of our brokenness, we are more bound by that brokenness, enslaved by it, which has rendered us impotent in our ability to reach God in our own effort. Religion is all about climbing a ladder to God. The gospel says you are so fundamentally sinful that you couldn't find God even if he was standing in front of you. We are like Jacob when he wakes up from his dream and says God is in this place and I didn't know it. That is the reality for all of us most of the time. We all lose our awareness that God is present and some of you are sitting here right now and wondering if he's present. And actually it is the sense of his absence that reminds us that he's probably there. But I think that this this longing for unity and reunion with God, we feel the crisis of it because of this brokenness. And what Romans makes us sit in, and we're going to sit in it for weeks, is just how sinful we are. Which is why the gospel becomes such good news. I mean, when we look at the book of Romans as a whole, you can see how it, 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 it... touches on every arena of existence. If I can get the next slide. You see in chapters one through four, we'll see how God has acted in Christ to bring us as sinners into a new relationship with himself. And that's that God has acted. That the gospel is down to earth. That it's God come to us in Christ. And that it is through the sending of his son that he has enacted this event that continues to be an event in our lives today, which is that the gospel is good news because it's down to earth. It's God come down to us. But we see in chapters five through eight that God has acted in Christ to provide for us eternal life and glory. That yes, Jesus loves sinners in their sin. God has chosen to love sinners in their sin, but he is not content to leave us there. And we get to dig into the assurance of our salvation because it's based upon what Christ has done, not what we do. We get to dig into the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does, that God is active in our lives, and he is personal, and he is relational, and we get to focus in on the future hope of an eternity with him, for all of creation groans and awaits its redemption, declares Romans 8. In 9 through 11, we get these mysterious chapters that a lot of people get very uncomfortable with because it deals with with providence, and sovereignty, and election, Uh, but really what those chapters are about is that how does this gospel, this gospel of Jesus, fit in? How is it connected to the Jewish faith? Because the Roman church was 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 probably started by the very Jews who were saved on the day of Pentecost, who were, had gathered in Jerusalem from around the known world and then had gone back with this this transformation, bringing the gospel to the temples in Rome. And, and there you have the birth of a Christian community that's a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. But what I love about 9 through 11 is it shows how God's action in Christ relates to God's focus on Israel in the Old Testament. In other words, it, Nine through eleven shows us how this gospel is anchored in human history and is connected to a covenantal God, and that the and that God's covenant with Israel was never meant to be for one particular people group, but that Israel was chosen. That through Israel, the whole world could be reached, and this is why Jesus came because Israel failed in that, and this is why I would say that Jesus is the true Israel. Chapters twelve through sixteen which there are some now that are saying, you shouldn't start in Romans 1, you should start in Romans 12, because people get lost in the theology and never get to the practical. Well, if Paul wanted us to start in Romans 12, he would have started the book with Romans 12. So, I don't know, maybe I'm not as smart as the academics who are declaring these things, Um, uh, but it's, 12 through 16 is how God has acted in Christ to transform our individual lives on earth now. It deals with government. It deals with with how do we deal with one another as a community. The weak new believers with mature believers. The weak with the strong. How do we we act as citizens? How How do we actually live the empowered life? How do we begin to live by the power of the spirit and what does that look like practically and it's it's such an incredible book but I just want to warn you on the front end there's reasons why people don't teach Romans there are some pretty famous passages in Romans that are going to make you uncomfortable and that's okay because our discomfort is not with whether or not it's true our discomfort is that our world is saying the exact opposite <laughs> and this is what we need to understand is that whatever discomfort you might feel just know this that whatever Paul targets when he begins to address the brokenness of humanity over the next few months he leaves no stone unturned and at the end of the day the indictment is this everybody's guilty and everybody has fallen short and This is why we can move comfortably into this. It's because of that that we can take a posture of grace and say, we all are the problem and Jesus is the solution. The gospel declares to us that God has come in where man could not get out. That God has entered his own creation in our prison and says, I have come to set you free. I can tell you what is on the other side, and you can be with me where I am because I love you with an everlasting love. The gospel says, I have not forgotten you, and I have made a way for you out of the prison. And that way is not a method, it's not an ideology, but it's an event in history. I did something about your lostness, I gave my son. He is the way. It's good news. So this is what we're going to be digging into. And today we're just going to look at the first few verses. And I want to just kind of open up some basic thoughts. Really even this intro is a part of that. Is that I want us to begin to settle. And I would encourage you over the next. I'm not going to tell you how long I'm going to be in Romans. I actually know. But I'm not going to tell you. And I would encourage you to read the book of Romans in its entirety once a week. No, no guilt. The Romans is about the gospel. So if I tell you you have to to be saved, then we have a fundamental problem already. Uh, but I would encourage you. Have you taken? I, I once did this this extra. I've done it a few times with Romans, where I'll take a month and I'll read it every day in one sitting for thirty days straight. And it it is it's insane how profound it is, how much it speaks to every arena of our lives. Romans is not everything. There's a whole Bible, but Paul writes the most concise proclamation of the gospel that we have anywhere in the Bible in Romans. So Romans 1 verse 1 gives us the introduction of who it is that has written it. Paul the apostle Writes these words. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Romans probably was written toward the end of the third missionary journey of Paul. And we spent a year, and I think a little over a year, in the book of Acts. And you remember Paul was Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was extremely educated. Uh, He was a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. And he took it upon himself to defend the Jewish faith by persecuting Christians and putting an end to the Christian faith. In fact, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, we see that that Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, is standing there holding the cloaks of those that are stoning Stephen in full approval. And he was tormenting the church, and he was zealous because the church was deeply afraid of him. And it was on the road to Damascus, we are told that Saul has this radical conversion, and that conversion was a God literally, I mean, you know, I was, people want to say, how does God save? I'm like, well, God is sovereign. And it is God who does the saving. Some he woos over time. Many he does. Maybe you were that person. You came to church for months and you heard the gospel presented. And then just one day you're like, this is real. I need to, I need, or you know, people talking. Saul was not so much like that. Saul was just like, smash to the ground, you're mine. And he's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I love that because Jesus identifies with his church that when you and I hurt, Jesus hurts with us. But he says to Saul, you are mine, and I have chosen Saul, the foolish things of the world. I have chosen Saul. I have chosen him to be my, as he as God gives Ananias a vision to go and baptize Saul, and he's afraid of him. He's like, He's the one that persecutes the church. Don't be afraid of him. I have chosen him. To be the very one who will bring the gospel to the Gentile world and he will suffer much for my name. If you are wondering if the, God, if, if Christ, if the Christian gospel is a suffering free reality, just know that his very words about Saul before Saul does anything is, he will suffer much for my name. <laughs> and so this man became this overnight, I mean it was immediate that he began to share his faith with people. And this particular letter, he started doing these, these missionary journeys where he would go and he'd plant churches. Well, Rome was not one of the churches he planted. He had not been there yet. And I think that's why he wrote such an in-depth letter, probably written around 56 AD, give or take a year or two. And the most likely scenario, as I said, is that these, these Roman Jews who had come to Jerusalem and had probably experienced their conversion uh, on the day of Pentecost had started this community. And there's conflict in this community between the Jewish believer and the new Gentile Christian believers. And of course, those questions around, okay, if Jesus was Jewish and and. and the Old Testament is God's word. What do we do with the law? And how does that work? And how is the gospel? How is Jesus the universal Christ who brings salvation to all? And should these Gentile believers start practicing the law? And so this is why Paul takes such an immense amount of time to write such a robust document about what the gospel is. He's preparing the way, because I'm sure they got the letter and they're like, what is this guy talking about? I don't know what this guy's, t- this is so dense. Uh, and think about it too. The letter was meant to be read. That was the sermon. It was read out loud to the congregation. Uh, and, and he was preparing the way for him to be able to come there. That was his hope and his desire to come and to minister to them. And so he starts off his letter in, in this unique way, he says, Paul is servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God. And there's just a couple things I want to say about this that I think is important when we understand calling. Uh, first of all, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant is actually the word for slave. And slave, uh, to be a slave or a bondservant, uh, is, is another way of saying that, that Paul is, is initiating this This letter is saying that I am one who is totally devoted to King Jesus, suggesting that the servant is completely at the disposal of his Lord. So even the writing of this letter is at the urging of the Holy Spirit, and this is why from the Apostle Paul, we actually receive the majority of our New Testament, is that he was a unique person who was uniquely grabbed by God, uniquely hardwired both in, in natural intelligence and and radical conversion and spiritual empowerment, God's elective purposes being fulfilled, that through Paul he can bring the gospel to the world, that he actually utilized Paul by his spirit to author some of our sacred scriptures. In which Paul himself would say, All scripture is God breathed. I wonder when he wrote that if he thought to himself, What I am writing to you right now would be considered a part of that. I doubt it. But that is the fact. And he says here, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus. And he says this: called to be an apostle, and one who is an apostle. Apostle um, literally means sent one. And in the most general sense, I think that if we were to talk about an apostolic gifting today, it would be someone that goes to a place and starts something that wasn't there before. Uh, specifically, a church, or even a missionary would be would be someone that would be that could be considered apostolic. Remember, what Paul says, I, I, "I determined to go, bring the gospel only to places where it's never been before." That his main interest was continuing to go and start things in places where nothing had been started before. Today, you know, someone would say, Josh, do you think you have the apostolic gifting? And, and, and I don't know. If it, means pioneer, if, if it means on the most basic level, pioneering a new work, maybe. But not in the sense that Paul... And the, and the apostles of Jesus had, because the apostles had a unique position in which Jesus utilized them to be the foundation of the church, uh, and Paul was the one who was selected by Jesus himself to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is why Paul says, called to be an apostle, and he means it in that very uh, spiritual, authoritative way. He is appointed by Christ himself To be a foundation for the church. But notice what he says. And I have been set apart for the gospel of God. What I love about this is it gives us a great insight into what it means to be one who is called. Because all of us are called by Christ. And as followers we are called. If you want to experience usefulness for the kingdom. It means there needs to be full surrender to the king. And when Paul says I am a servant of Christ Jesus. He means I am not my own. And I don't make decisions for my life. I am under the complete authority of Jesus. He has the right as my master to dictate and determine what it is that I do and where it is that I go. But remember, Jesus said that he's a good master, that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light, and that his joy is real. And so I think that Paul has so radically experienced the love of Christ, because he himself said the love of Christ compels me, that it's not easy; it's not hard to be a bondservant of Christ. You will not experience the freedom of the gospel until you submit yourself to its center, which is Jesus himself. He is the gospel. If he's not Lord, you're gonna experience a lot of conflict around what it is that you believe as a Christian. And so it is that he says... I I am an apostle. I've been set apart by God to carry this gospel. And what he does is he introduces himself as one who has and wants nothing. The call he has received is his life. He is the messenger and nothing else. His message is his life. And his mission is to share that message with all. Now I think that this is really important. The message that Paul continually preaches is his joy, his life. It's it's not just, I'm giving you a message that's been given to me. The message is his message. This is why he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This is why he says, according to my gospel... There is an ownership in it because he has become possessed by Christ, literally possessed by his spirit, overwhelmed by his love. He has fallen in love and he doesn't care who knows. And all he can do is just give this message. I'm giving you the message because it has changed my life. It's when you experience something. Have you? I am a huge salesman every time I experience something that's really. Like, really life, I mean, I remember I went through a season where I became obsessed with, um, with, uh, what's it called, the um, keto, uh, like the coffee, bulletproof coffee, right? I made more people drink coffee with butter in it. I mean, seriously, you came over to my house, I insisted that you had to drink, a tablespoon of butter and coconut oil in your coffee. And you're like, I don't like butter. I don't care. You will have this. It it will change your life. And my wife's like, I hate you on this. It's like you're on crack cocaine. It's like, I just, I was like, no, it's amazing. I've lost like 20 pounds and I'm super wiry and really overwhelming all the time. It's wonderful. And my skin's greasy. (laughs) But it was just like, I just, I want to sell you on what I'm passionate about. But I think most of us are that way. Maybe our intensity levels vary, but what we were really excited about, think about when you first, when you first have, a—I mean, all you have to do, like a, look at an Instagram account of someone who's a new parent or even gets a new puppy for that matter. I mean, it's just like, that's the only thing you see for post after post. We want to, we, we are most passionate about proclaiming what it is that we ourselves love. And so Paul, for him, his message is also his life. I think it also gives us a really important insight into the gospel is that the gospel is not good advice to be followed. It's news. It's good news about what has already been done for you in Jesus And not only that, it's not something that that we are at liberty to reshape. It sounds more appealing, or that sounds more appealing to our modern sensibilities. Why do we have to continually give up the heartbeat of the gospel to be less offensive? As if Jesus was ever motivated by not being offensive. What he was motivated by was, I love lost people. And I can't save lost people that don't know the truth because he was the truth. And when he would present people the truth, they either said yes or no to his yes. And that is the reality today. We don't get to domesticate the gospel to make it less offensive. When we surrender the ethics of Jesus' kingdom, all we really are doing is surrendering Jesus. We're preaching a different gospel. That's the other thing is that when you have these continual proclamations that there's some new angle on the gospel that one's never thought of before, you should be extremely, you should find it suspect. Because every legitimate move of God in church history is simply a return to the old move that moved away. Paul did not discover some, or excuse me, uh, Martin Luther did not discover something new in the Reformation. What he did was he returned to the apostolic faith of the patristic fathers, which said that Jesus Christ is the only way, that it is by by his grace. All you have to do to realize that Luther said nothing that Augustine didn't already say so long before him. And I think that this is what the scriptures declare is that the gospel, when we begin to invest in it and, and give ourselves to it, we will become possessed by it and, and it'll feel new because if anyone be in Christ Jesus, all things are new. That's the beauty of the gospel. So the gospel's not new. Rather, he says it's something that's promised beforehand through the prophets. And that's what I love about where he goes on to say, he's like, listen, this is the message. It was promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. This is what the Old Testament was all pointing toward. It was, it was anchored in the scriptures, all of scripture. Jesus himself said it. He said, if you believed Moses, if you believed Abraham, you would know that, that he spoke of me. He was stoned, or excuse me, he was crucified Arrested and crucified for making himself one with God. Declaring that the scriptures were about him. And Paul says the same thing. It was. That Jesus is the content of the Old Testament. And that's why I say we don't talk about any, I don't care if we're talking about the minor prophets or Genesis or the Psalms or Ecclesiastes. I don't care if we're talking about Revelation. I don't care if we're talking about James. If we're not talking about Jesus and not only what Jesus taught but what Jesus did, if we aren't talking about the gospel and he is the heart of the gospel, then we aren't actually talking about what the Bible's talking about. And this is why he says it. Not only was it was it promised beforehand through his prophets, but it's concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. He said, "Listen, Jesus was and is Israel's Messiah." But he's saying something even more. He's saying that God has done something radical—that He has entered into human flesh, that the Creator actually became something that He was not before. The unchanging God changed. The God of the universe, God is spirit, and no man has seen God at any time. And yet God became flesh. It's what we call incarnation. We're going to explore that more fully as we get into the book of Romans. But Paul, right here in the very beginning, is declaring something that is central to the Christian faith, that Jesus is both God and man. Not God cloaked in human flesh. He is both man and God. He didn't become human for a little while and then return to his spiritual form. That would be Gnosticism. No, he says he became a man. I love what the Nicene Creed says. It became a man for our good and he will continue for eternity to be a man for our good. His humanity reminds us that he is like us enough to relate to us. I don't want a God that's Holy other and detached from my existence. Yes, God is holy other, but in, in that separateness, he has chosen to identify with us in our lowest point, our sin. But he also has to be different enough from us to actually represent us. He became like us in every way. That is that he took upon himself human flesh, but at the same time, we're told in Hebrews that he was tempted in every arena except without failing. This is why Jesus is the great architect of our salvation. He is the bridge builder. This is why you can trust if sin is a huge part of what we are every day, most moments of the day, I need a God that doesn't just simply understand my suffering. I need him to actually understand my fundamental quirks and glitches and sinfulness. And what we're told is that he does that as well. He understands our sin better than we do because he was able to see it through all the way to its bitter end without failure. He took our sin into the grave. He conquered death and the dominions of darkness and the devil by becoming sin on the cross this is why we're told that he descended from david according to the flesh yes he is man enough to understand us but but different enough that he can represent us but at the same time he is god and this is where it says and he was declared to be the son of god in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord what i love about this is it tells us that this relationship he wasn't just this man appointed by God to be the representative. No, he had to be God to actually work out our salvation. That God in Jesus is both our judge and the judged in our place. That he actually comes before us. That the creator of the universe has actually chosen to not exist without us is one of the most profound realities that the son of God with power speaks of his unique relationship to the father, that, that he was not always Jesus the man, but before he entered into the human story through the incarnation, he was the eternal son of God. And this is why we hold so deeply. You can't even escape the doctrine of the Trinity when you read the book of Romans. Because the Trinity tells us something that is so important for our understanding of the gospel. That the essence of what it means to be made in the image of God means that we were made for a relationship. And that God is a community within himself. One God, three persons. And we're told that he was, by the, by the spirit of holiness, his resurrection from the dead. What we have there is that God's stamp of approval, the father's stamp of approval on the son's finished work. God reveals himself to his creation through Jesus and reconciles creation to himself through Jesus. And this is why we need to understand our message and we're gonna dig into it in depth. But finally, in just the last couple minutes, I just wanna say that Paul even declares the task and this is my task and my desire as we dig into Romans over the next months. And that is, as he says, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Notice what Paul says there. We have received grace and apostleship. I have become overcome. I have received God's love. He had the gift of receiving as well. And that reception of God's radical one-way love turned him into a conduit of that love. His apostleship, his movement being set apart and sent, came only after he had received the grace to move into that role, and notice what he says about us. I love this. He says, "And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to belong." What I love, I love that Christ wants our whole disposition. To be so stripped down that we are unafraid of being embarrassed for our faults, which is why I continually call us to a radical vulnerability as a church, recognizing that we are more sinful than we like to admit, that we need to learn to be honest about our brokenness, but it's because of our recognition that Jesus, everything that needs to be done has been done in and through Christ, that when we recognize that we are the beloved, that God loves us. He's called us to belong to Jesus Christ. And when we give ourselves to him, it frees us of the, of the embarrassment of our faults. But it also frees us of our temptation to delight in our victories. It doesn't matter. It's Jesus. I just did a podcast um, with this guy named Brian Sumner who's a pro skater for Birdhouse and had a radical conversion and he has this podcast called the Foolishness Podcast and I stayed with his family last week and I was speaking at a conference and he was so intense for Jesus and I what I loved about him is he really is like the foolishness of the gospel like we would just be in a restaurant and he would just want to tell people about Jesus like and I even found myself this like the cynicism and the self-consciousness of Portland is so crazy, it just infiltrates us after a while. It's like, hey, I mean, I know Orange County is the Bible Belt, but still, I mean, this guy was, like, just going for it. Like, we're, like, just ordering pizza, and he's just like, how you doing, man? Just church tomorrow. You should come. This my friend right here. He's speaking tomorrow. You should come. He's going he's gonna to talk about Jesus. I'm going to see you there. Like, <laughs> I was like, sorry, sorry. And I'm like, well, you should come should when the door was shut. <laughs> but that, that, that being called to belong, is that, the belonging to Jesus and being freed from this tyranny of our own. I, I'm broken. I'm a mess. But Jesus is so good. And that's why I want to tell you about him. Because only he brings healing. And then he says, finally in seven, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to be a community that experience, experiences daily, moment by moment, the radical grace of God and the peace that comes from receiving it because that is what will push us out into the world. Notice what he says, the call all the Gentiles in verse five to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. We don't obey to believe. We believe, which means we receive grace. We experience peace. And we step out and realize that the gospel is not about us discovering ourselves. It's about us discovering the beauty of Jesus. And we can't wait to tell others about him. Listen, there's a lot of talk these days about what does spiritual formation look like for in the believer's life? And I would just simply say this. I believe in spiritual formation, but I actually believe that the believer is always malformed and that the only path towards formation in Christ is doing what Christ did in the power of Christ's spirit. And what Christ did was he gave his life to a broken and lost world. And if the gospel isn't pushing us out of ourselves to tell others how awesome Jesus is, if our affections haven't been reordered, if Jesus isn't the central love, if he hasn't become our Lord, if we don't describe ourselves as his servants, then there's something fundamentally wrong with our understanding of the gospel. It is good news. And we need to become the messengers. And we need to remember that He is the message. And that the task that He has given us is to receive His love in communion with Him and then give it away to everyone we meet. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why I'm so excited about Romans. Amen? Let's pray.